Our Father, we're thankful for the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. And even as we look at this beautiful spring day and we think of how you've blessed us abundantly this year with uh, moisture, with rain and snow, and we're just grateful, Lord, that you are the God who meets every need of your people. And so we trust you to bless us today because we know that no matter how much physical moisture there may be around, that if we don't have the Word of God implanted in our souls, we are spiritual deserts. And we need that life and strength. And Father, we need the interpretation from your Holy Spirit that we might have true understanding and that you will enable us to have true application. And so bless us during this time, Father, as we study your Word. And we pray your presence throughout the Sunday School, even this hour, that you will be manifested to each life. And Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here on this uh, church grounds this morning who does not know you, that you will touch that life and open that heart and bring that individual to yourself. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you remember, two weeks ago when we were <clears throat> working at this, we began chapter 24 of Genesis. So let's read again the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 24. Beginning at verse 1, Now Abraham was old, <clears throat> advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you shall go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Suppose the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, Beware lest you take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from, my, from this my oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. We began the chapter looking last week at the blessing of Abraham, and uh, he was a man who was blessed by God in virtually every aspect of his life, spiritually, physically, psychologically, you name the area, he was blessed of God. And to me, uh, the, the greatest blessing of all was that he was called a friend or the friend of God. In the midst of it, though, we discover that he does not neglect something that was very important to him, and that's the ongoing of the family. Because God had promised to him that your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the heavens as you visualize them. And he had been out on that uh, starry night many, many decades before this time, of course, and, and God had shown him the stars and, and made this promise to him. Well, having his son Isaac, of course, was a step in that direction, but if Isaac doesn't get married and have children, then what's going to happen to this whole thing? So he becomes uh, quite concerned with this particular matter at this juncture. And as I pointed out at the end of class two weeks ago, 
I think Isaac was concerned about this matter too by now. After all, he was approximately 40 years of age and uh, probably very much interested in uh, finding a wife, settling down, having a family, and uh, charting uh, a course for himself, developing a separate life from that of his father. And to some extent, he already had, as we uh, notice, as we'll be reading further in the chapter uh, probably uh, next week. Now, it was very, very important, and, and, and this is the thing that Abraham is emphasizing here to the servant is emphasizing to uh, this man that the wife that his son was to have had to be a woman who was in conformity to the basic commitment that Abraham had to God and to the commitment that Isaac would have to God. He was not to allow him to marry a Canaanite woman. Now, it's not to say that God couldn't save a Canaanite. But the Canaanites were born and reared in, in the depth of paganism. From the time they were small, they had worshipped, in many cases, a multitude of god or gods or a particular god in which they, they worshipped in, in what we understand much later on as we study the lives of people like Jezebel uh, in, a, in a deeply pagan way. And so it was very, very important that uh, a woman who was either a godly woman or who could easily fit into that mold or be brought into that mold, be found. A union of faith is absolutely essential. And this was our last point two weeks ago. The Scripture teaches us that we are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And that, I think, means in, in many different contexts, but the, the thrust of it seems to be in the area of marriage. Now, sometimes that happens because both people are not believers when they're married, when they get married, and then one of them becomes a believer. Now, there, there's not anything you can do about that. The Bible isn't saying, well, then go out and get rid of your mate. You know, that's, that's not, the Scripture is not teaching that. But when one is a believer, the Scripture is clearly teaching that that person as a believer not marry an unbeliever because all it's going to result in is a great deal of pain and heartache and misery down the line. The, the spiritual commitment is absolutely essential. It, it seems, if you stop and think about it, in reality, just about every difference between a man and a woman could be worked out if both are committed to working it out except this difference. The spiritual difference cannot be, quote, worked out because it reflects the very nature, the very core of the person. Either the person's alive or he's dead. And you cannot work an agreement between an alive person and a dead person. It just doesn't work. Uh, you can talk till you're blue in the face, but the dead person does not understand what the spiritual alive person is talking about. It's impossible because their ears are dead. They cannot understand. Christ emphasized, as we well know, that the husband and wife, as they became married, were one flesh. And his meaning goes far beyond simple sexual union, which is certainly included in that meaning. But beyond it, there's the unity of commitment in all areas of life, and particularly the unity in God. And that unity in God means that we focus on worship to God together, and hopefully what it means is that a husband and a wife are committed in prayer together. 
This is one of the uh, most important ways that a husband and wife become united and become truly one flesh is if they pray together. Husband and wife become a praying team. Sometimes it's hard, and uh, particularly for husbands, it's hard to do that sometimes, but it's, it's essential. It needs to happen. And uh, when that happens, you, you have much greater uh, unity, of course, as, as a couple, spiritually and in every other way, but also there's much greater power in prayer, I believe. Now, as we read in the 22nd chapter of Genesis a few weeks back, Abraham had gotten word concerning his brother Nahor's family and that there were these individuals living back in his, quote, hometown, whatever that might have been. So it seems to come to him at this time that that would be a good place to seek a wife for my son. Let's go back to my hometown or you know, back to uh, the home area at least. Uh, it probably wasn't Haran, uh, but a city possibly near Haran where... Uh, the family was living, Nahor's family was living. And go back there and let's see if we cannot find a young lady that would be just right for Abraham. Now you have to remember, as we've already seen because we've noted how closely related Abraham and Sarah were, that, that they were family was not a detrimental issue. He wasn't concerned that this person might be a first cousin or a second cousin. That was just fine, in fact. I think partly that that was not a problem because just talking physically, the human gene pool hadn't become as messed up yet as it has over the past 4,000 years. You know, it just really depends a lot upon our understanding of how long mankind has been on the earth. If you believe uh, in a literal interpretation of the scripture and you believe in, in, a, in a creation which took place in a very short uh, period of time, and that the time from Abraham to, I mean, from Adam to us today is not 10,000 or 100,000 or 5 million years, but uh, maybe no more than 6 or 8, uh, maybe 10,000, but probably not that long years. Uh, and, and the few people who lived in those early uh, time periods, then we can understand that we're not talking about much of a, of a gene pool corruption yet. But we're living in a highly corrupted gene pool today, because of the multi uh, multitudes of billions of uh, people that have developed in the world today. He felt, I'm sure, that the chances were better of finding a young lady who was already understanding the God of Abraham and Isaac or at least would be open to accepting the God of her husband, husband Isaac. Now, we might ask here, why, why does Abraham send this servant? Why doesn't he go himself? Well, it probably, in the first verse where it says, now Abraham was old, advanced in age, this was probably his reasoning. He felt too old. Now, again, as I mentioned to you once before, this is all a matter of perspective because this man, as old as he may have felt, is yet to marry again and yet to father at least six more sons. So I don't know how old, you know, he really felt at this time, but apparently too old to make the journey clear back to upper Mesopotamia. Now, if we take the shortest distance 
to the probable place to which this servant was going. We're talking about approximately 600 miles from where Abraham was living back to the area of Haran. And, and we're not sure it was right near Haran. Uh, there's no way of knowing if the city of Nahor, which is all it's called here, was near Haran or not. Many commentators feel it was somewhere in the vicinity of Haran, maybe a few miles away, a few dozen miles away, but probably up in Upper Mesopotamia because later references refer to it as being in Paden Aram, which is more or less what we today call Syria. Now, it's also possible, however, that the city was in Lower Mesopotamia, which would have been, of course, a much longer journey. Now, 600 miles. To us, we say, well, no big deal, hop in my car, <laughs> and 12 hours later, I've covered 600 miles. But in those days, you're not hopping into a car, uh, even though we do have Mustangs and Mavericks and things like that. Uh, I don't know of anybody named a camel, a car a camel yet, have they? <laughs> well, I suppose if a car uh, manufacturer wanted to emphasize the great gas mileage they get, they could, could call it a camel. But anyway, uh, to travel by camel in those days was a much slower process. Now, it is known from ancient times, and this goes clear back to the days of Eratosthenes, uh, who didn't live near as far back as Abraham, but lived, oh, 2,300 years ago or so. It's known that um, camels will travel approximately 50 miles a day on the average. The camel's day trip is about 50 miles, providing he is not, this camel is not led by a walking human being. If a human being is leading the camel walking, then you can cut that in half. But the camel himself, if ridden, or being traveling in a caravan where no one is walking, no people are walking, the caravan can cover approximately 50 miles. It's very interesting because that's how Eratosthenes em uh, uh, estimated the circumference of the earth, if you can imagine. By a relatively crude measuring device, uh, he was able to come up with a circumference of the earth which was only 4% error from what it actually is. And all he was using was how far a camel on an average day walked, and thus how far it must have been between Cairo and Cyrene, which were the two spots that he was using for his uh, uh, shadow differences for me me measuring the angles and so forth. <laughs> it's really amazing when you think about it. So camels must have walked approximately 50 miles a day, pretty close uh, to that. Given that, uh, we're, we're talking about a trip of probably about a month, give or take a few days, considering the terrain and the stops that they would make and uh, time for resting and so forth. He decided not to go, but to send a trusted servant. The scripture teaches us that this man was the oldest of his household, oldest of the servants. Now, this passage does not name him but numerous commentators, and even Oswald Chambers in his uh, uh, book, uh, refers to him as Eliezer. Remember back in the 15th chapter when uh, Abraham was bemoaning the fact he had no son and Eliezer of Damascus, who was his chief servant, was his only heir? Uh, most have thus assumed 
although it doesn't say this specifically, but the fact that it says the oldest of his household, the man who had charge of all that he owned, that this probably was Eliezer. And, and some commentaries just go on and just keep calling him that all through their description without even qualifying, qualifying it. So here is the chief of staff, in effect, being asked to, to make this journey. Now, it's certain that Abraham trusted this man. He had given him the power over all that he had. He sort of, it almost implies that he had power of attorney, as what we would call power of attorney today, but control over all that Abraham owned. And thus, he was a man of considerable ability, obviously high intellect, uh, integrity, a man who uh, could be trusted to do what Abraham wanted done. And yet, you'll notice, he has this man make a special oath. Why? Well, it could partly be that Eliezer had been so used to making his own choices and his own decisions because he was so trusted that Abraham was a little bit fearful that he would just take the instructions in a general sense and interpret his own little nuances along the way and not follow the explicit orders of Abraham. So just to make sure that it uh, was that his uh, wishes were explicitly followed, he asks him to take this very solemn oath. Now, by placing his hand under the thigh of Abraham, he, the servant was, in effect, swearing by Abraham's reproductive capacity, which was highly honored in those days. We live in a day and age where, as you know, uh, it's it's down, downplayed in the sense of, of having any particular value or any ultimate meaning. It's just, a, it's made commonplace today. Uh, sex is badly abused in our society and the fruit of, of it is, uh, you know, quickly destroyed and thought of as, as nothing. Uh, but in those days, this was a very, very uh, solemn thing and considered a very honorable and high and lofty thing. The capacity to reproduce, and we've seen this already, in how badly Sarah felt in the fact that she could not have a child until God miraculously provided her uh, with Isaac. And we'll see this on in the case of Rebecca. Uh, the same kind of thing happens. And so this, this was a very, very solemn thing for him to do here. And of course, it was not just that, because he also swore by the name of the author of life himself and by the God of heaven and earth. So this was to be taken by this servant as the ultimate commitment, not to deviate one little, quote, jot or tittle, if you will, from what Abraham has asked him to do. But you'll notice how seriously the, the servant takes this because uh, down in verse 5, he, he presents what could be a very likely scenario. He says, suppose the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? And he emphatically says, no, don't take him back there. What shall I do if she won't come? You know, I, I can go there and God can lead me and I can find this woman, but what if she won't come back with me? Now think about it for a moment. I mean, he was going on a, on a long and dangerous trip. He was going to find some woman who was an absolute blank to him at this uh, particular moment in time. But so he finds this woman. Barring divine intervention, 
which of course, <laughs> you know, we, we understand because we know the whole story. Uh, at least we have it before us here. Think about it for a moment. This young lady was going to have to believe the words of a stranger, embark on a long, dangerous trip to a country she has never seen to marry another total stranger. Now, isn't it very likely she might say, uh, no thanks. I mean, a blind date's one thing, but blind marriage? <laughs> Now, I'm not saying it hasn't happened historically. It has, obviously. In many societies, uh, a young man, a young lady are committed to be married because their parents have done so when they're first born. Uh, and, and sometimes it's, it's even possible they haven't uh, really met before the time of their marriage. It's, you know, it's really kind of a scary thing for us because of the way we look at it. But I'm always reminded of uh, the, the, the little encounter between... Uh, uh, what's his name in Fiddler on the Woof? Roof? Roof. <laughs> <laughs> Tevya and, and, and it's Golda, is it? Uh, where they're, they're in the room together talking and, of course, singing. And they, he says, do you love me? You know, she says, well, for 25 years, you know, what have I been doing? And the point was, of course, they, they were strangers literally to each other when they got married and they had learned to love each other. And so, you know, that's, that's something that happens in reality. And in many societies, that's absolutely essential. To us, who, who put it the other way around, uh, we, we want to love each other before we commit ourselves to a life together. Uh, that seems like, uh, you know, kind of a pig and a poke approach. And we're not really too sure that um, we want to do that or would want to do that. And so we can be very understanding with this lady, how she might not want to uh, follow this guy. Well, Abraham understood this possibility. He does not negate this as a, as a possible uh, reaction. And so he says in verse 8, if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath. If she won't come, then the oath is canceled. You are free. You've done your job. You could not, you're not being expected to abduct the woman. You're not supposed to, you know, put a bag over her head and, and steal her away, you know. <laughs> this was not what you were to do. Now, there is no record in this passage that God gave Abraham this plan explicitly. From what we know how it worked out, we assume implicitly, yes, that somehow God put it in his heart to do this. But he was acting in faith. He believed, I think, that this was God's way. And so he sets the plan in motion and he believes by faith that God will lead this man and that the woman will come. I think this is Abraham's belief. And of course, it's not absolutely, totally far-fetched when you remember that the woman is to be from his brother's household. So really, there is some kind of a connection there. And certainly she had heard of Abraham and maybe even of Isaac. If this is God's plan, the girl will come. If not, then God will show some other way. One of the things he made sure, though, whatever the girl decides to do, do not take my son to Mesopotamia. 
So the servant has two negative commands here. Do not let him marry a Canaanite and do not take him to Mesopotamia. He must stay here. This is the land of promise. This is the land that God has given to me and my descendants, which means to Isaac and his descendants. He must not leave here. Now, what example did he have that uh, a close relative might choose the wrong way to go? Lot, right? Uh, Lot stood there and with his eyes open made the wrong choice. And so he didn't want his son to have that opportunity to make the wrong choice. He might choose to stay in Mesopotamia. You know, if he took him here, if he took him there and the, he wooed the girl and they got married, she might say, oh, but I don't think I want to go to Canaan. Why, why don't we just stay here? And what's he going to do? No. Now you're coming with me. Probably not. So let's not even allow that as a possibility. Now, there is a, a direct implication here that Abraham did believe that this was God's plan because he promises to the servant that God's malak will go with him. God's messenger, God's angel, as we would interpret it. He will go before you to prepare the way. He will make the pieces fall into place. And so this servant was going forth in the strength of the God that he had seen to be faithful to his master Abraham time and time again. This is the oldest servant in his household, the one who had been with him through all these decades, and he had seen all these things happen. He had witnessed the miraculous birth of Isaac, and he had heard the words of Abraham as he had the various encounters with God. He knew this God of Abraham. And so he was going forth in that faith and in the strength of Abraham's promise. Verse 10. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of goods of his masters in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the gate, outside the city, by, by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring, and the daughters of, men, of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now, may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also, may she be the one whom thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And by this, I shall know that thou hast shown loving kindness to my master. <laughs> How many of us would be willing to pray that specifically? This faithful servant, be he Eliezer or whomever he was, obediently prepared for the long trek. Now, a lot of things are summed up in these verses, which you can probably quickly imagine 
must have taken place. The journey was going to be long and it was going to be arduous. It was going to be dangerous. Therefore, it was very, very important that he prepared well. He didn't just run over to the camel lot, you know, and, and grab 10 camels and throw a couple of bottles of water on and take off. I mean, this had to be planned well. All the things that were going to have to go with him had to be counted out and, and uh, faithfully put in place, and everything had to be balanced just right for each camel. The loads would include, of course, food and water. It would include utensils for the trip. It would include gifts that would be given. When he got there, it would include bedding. It would include the weapons, even, for the journey. Now, were all ten camels pack animals? It's really hard to tell here. It, it seems, at least if you can kind of read behind the lines here, that the ten camels that he picked out uh, from the camel lot <laughs> were uh, camels uh, that were to be the pack animals. And that probably there were to be riding camels in addition to those that would go along. It's obviously, can't tell for sure about this, but since the trip was going to be long, this man was not going to go by himself, that's for sure. And so many would go with him. Uh, we know, if we just turn over here to verse 32 for a moment, that he didn't go alone. It says, So the man entered the house, then Laban unloaded the camels, and he gave straw, gave straw and feed to the camels and water to wash the feet, and the feet of the men who were with him. Plural. So there were many who went with him. I would just guess probably at least a dozen or so men went along with this servant on the journey. Why? Cannot one man take care of ten camels? Oh, probably. But we have to remember, he is traveling 600 miles through a territory that is not controlled by any strong sovereign state. It's a region controlled by many little petty states, and certainly there were many brigands and highwaymen and all kinds of people along the route just looking out for that uh, easy-to-pick-off traveler. You, you have to be reminded, I think, of the parable that Jesus gave of the man going between Jerusalem and Jericho. And these, that was in the day of Rome, when the mightiest power of the Mediterranean was, was at its height in Jesus' day. I mean, Emperor Caesar Augustus was the most powerful of all emperors of Rome. And the Pax Romana was just moving to its greatest height. And yet, this could happen to a man walking in broad daylight down one of the main roads. And so we can assume that uh, there was a great deal of criminal activity going on in this part of the world at this time. We don't have a corner on it in our society today, as we probably are well aware of. And so here he has these other men to go along with him to help guard the caravan. Uh, who's going to attack a caravan with maybe a dozen armed men? Well, it would take a pretty good-sized group, not just a few brigands. And so, especially when you remember, this is in the day long before there were guns. And so when it's, you know, each guy's got a knife or a sword, it's kind of equal. <laughs> you know? uh, one person with a gun can keep a lot of people at bay, but two people with equal weapons, 
and they're both hand weapons, uh, you can keep another person at bay uh, more easily, I think. The whole trip is summarized in just, uh, in, in just a few words there, uh, the last 12 words of verse 10. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. <laughs> there, that was the story of his trip. <laughs> How many of us go on a long trip and that's the story of our trip? Well, we went to New York. <laughs> oh, well, what happened? What'd you see? What, who'd you meet? All this kind of stuff, no. It just, he went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. There's the trip all summarized together for you. But it's what happened when he arrived there that was critical. The servant could have said, okay, here I am. Oh, my goodness. How am I going to find this girl in this city? First, I got to search around and try to find if anybody knows the family of Nahor. And then I got to find out where they live. And then I got to interview all the women who might be associated with this household. Oh, what a pain. <laughs> you know, he could have thought all those things. And he had several weeks of travel to think a lot of things. I think he prayed during that time. No, we can only infer what his relationship uh, is with God. But I think through his contact with Abraham over all these years that Abraham's God had become his God. And maybe he didn't have faith exactly at the level that Abraham had, uh, but uh, he had faith in Abraham's faith, if, uh, if nothing else. And so uh, when he arrived there, I think in order to have been Abraham's overseer in the first place. He had to be an intelligent person, a wise man, a discerning person. But I think God gave him this idea. How many of you would say, well, Lord, I'm going to go to the main square of town and watch the people going by and trust that you'll, you know, have a pigeon land on the head of the right one, you know, or, or something like that. <clears throat> I think God gave him the wisdom for this plan and the faith to believe it would work. Now, one thing he did know, the women of the city always come to the well or to the spring of the city in the evening. This was true wherever you lived in the ancient Near East because that was their practice. They came to gather water for the evening meal, for evening cleanup, for all the things that take place at the end of the day. They come for water at the end of day. So he parked the camels there near the well or the spring, and he turned to God for help. His prayer, you'll notice, was beautiful. That's fine. But it was simple, and it was to the point. He didn't say, oh, God, maker of heaven and earth, the one who brings the fleecy clouds through the azure skies. You know, he could have said all kinds of things. He just says, God, I've got a big problem here, in effect, and uh, grant me success today and show loving kindness. I'm standing by the spring, and uh, the <coughs> ladies are coming out. Now, let the one who's the right one do these things. Now, you will notice he says, God of my master Abraham. I don't think we need to imply by that that he didn't personally know God. I think this is a statement of humility. I, and, and I think this is uh, specifically true because he says, O Lord, and the word is Yahweh. He calls him by his specific name. He doesn't say 
uh, Elohim, or a more general term. He calls him Yahweh, God of my master Abraham. Grant me success today. And so he lays out a very specific plan in his prayer. He believed that God could put it into both the mind and the heart of the girl to do these things. Now, if he didn't believe God could do that, he would never have prayed that prayer. If he didn't believe that God was imminent, that God came down into the affairs of mankind, he would never have prayed this prayer. He was not a deist, obviously. He believed in a God who heard, who answered, and who could do, the, do what was, was asked. The wrong girls would refuse to do what he asked, the right girl would do what he asked. And certainly if the right girl did, I mean the wrong girl did the right thing, he could straighten that out very quickly by saying, uh, are you related to Nahor? And she'd say no and he'd say, thank you, <laughs> goodbye. So, you know, he was, uh, he had it nailed down pretty good here. I think this whole episode exhibits great faith in God. And it's really, really important for us, I think, to learn something from this particular passage. It was not that any one of several girls who fit the general criteria would be acceptable for Isaac. The implication is that there was one girl walking this planet who was the wife to be the wife of Isaac. Not that you have your pick of 50 because they kind of fit in the general category, but God has this one person for Isaac. And therefore, he was out to find that one person. And only God, of course, knew who that person would be. Now, did Abraham send along a, long, uh, a, a list of qualifications? Did he say she had to be five foot two, eyes of blue, you know, coochie, 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 coo? Probably not. <laughs> Certainly, these were not requisites that he sent along. If he sent along any list at all, it's not mentioned. And the method he uses seems to imply there was no such list because he says, let the woman who is the right one do these things. He doesn't say if she's so tall and she weighs so much and if she looks like this or looks like that, and, and then she does this, let her be the woman. He says, all the women are coming. Let the one who does this be the one. That implies that there was no list, no, no qualifications that were before him. Now, we know there was one qualification, right? She was to be of Abraham's relative's family. She was to be of Nahor's family. So there was that one qualification. And implicit was, possibly specifically uh, stated, probably Abraham didn't have to state it to him, she was to be a virgin. Now, this prayer, I think, is a great example to us. First of all, it was an admission of need. The choice of a wife for his master, Isaac, was too important for him to depend on his own abilities. God has given to you and to me certain abilities. But he did not give us those abilities for us to depend upon them 
without God's empowerment and God's leading. We aren't given these powers just to go out and use them however we feel like without seeking God in the use of them. And whatever this man's abilities were, and they had to be great in order for him to be the head of all that Abraham had, he knew there was no way in the world he'd find the right woman and that she would go with him unless God did it. And so he was admitting his need here. In, in thinking about this, it reminded me of James chapter 4, verse 10, where the scripture simply says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. One of the greatest problems the human race has is the problem of pride. There's never been a person born in this planet who hasn't had that problem. Some have it more obviously than others. But to be arrogant, self-sufficient, and even in supposed humility and, uh, and uh, doormat approach, there is a pride. There is a lack of humility. God wants us to truly come before him, not as a worm, no, saying, well, oh, Lord, I know, you know, not the Eeyore approach, you know, Eeyore. <laughs> Thanks for noticing me, you know. You say some, some of you look like you've never heard of Eeyore. <laughs> well, if you have children and grandchildren, you should have heard of Eeyore. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh's donkey friend, Eeyore. He's the one who's always going around uh, like, uh, if you kicked him, he says, thanks. <laughs> you know, at least you noticed me. Um, that's not the approach God wants us to have, but he wants us to have the approach that we know that in our strength we can no, do no good thing. Scripture says that. In our flesh, we can do no good thing. This man in his flesh could do no good thing. We're to humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt us in that he will bring about his will through us. And that's what the servant was looking for. Secondly, the prayer was an expression of faith. Faith that God cared, that God really cared whether the right woman was found. And that he would answer the request. Do, do we pray believing that God will actually do what we say? Or do we pray and say, whoa, God answered that, I'm amazed. You know, Sometimes I guess that really happens. But Jesus, in his words back in the 21st chapter of Matthew, says, And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. All things you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. Now, again, we have to note that no one verse in Scripture can be looked upon as the theology of prayer wrapped up in one verse. We have to bring the many verses to bear on prayer to help us to understand the whole theology of prayer. But one of the great points of the theology of prayer is believing that God cares and that God hears and that God will answer. If we don't believe that, we're wasting our time to even pray. Thirdly, it was an alleviation of anxiety. The man does not have to be concerned that he's got this job to do and how am I going to do it and what if I goof it up? He can cast the whole thing off on God. God is responsible. God will do his part. I will put the burden on the Lord. And you well know the scripture tells us that that's where the Lord wants the burden. 
You put it on him. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. He's here. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Many times that peace of God is actually more important than the answer to the prayer. Because if, if, if that need causes us great anxiety and frustration and causes us to not be walking as we ought to in the Lord, then that can be far more detrimental than the, than the prayer not being answered. But if we can have the peace of God because we've rolled the thing off on Him, then that can be more of a blessing to us and to humanity than the actual answer to the prayer, whatever it is. And this man could just relax in the Lord. God's going to do it. I don't have to worry about it. I just have to do my part and God will bring it about. And then finally, it was a submission to the will of God. He sought the help of God. Why? So that the will of God would be accomplished and that his master would be honored in this. Remember the passage in 1 John? It's really a critical passage to understand relative to prayer. Sometimes prayers are not answered because we do not know this part of the theology of prayer. 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything at all, anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. There is a passage that says, whatever you ask in Jesus' name, it shall be given. And those who think just because you attach the name of Jesus, automatically, you know, God's got to hop. But the scripture tells us that if it's according to his will, if we believe, there's a long list of things that all come together for the theology of prayer. It doesn't make prayer complicated. It doesn't mean that we have to have a degree in theology to be able to pray. But it means that we have to understand what prayer is really all about. And, and that uh, we're not just pressing little buttons to get God to do something that we can't do or that we think ought to happen but we are part of the process of God accomplishing his plan. And so our confidence is there and we can trust if we know it's according to his will. And so that's what he is saying. I, I believe that you have guided my master to send me here to look for this woman and it's your will that the right woman be found for my master Isaac. Therefore, O oh God, let your will be manifest. I want your will to be done. Back in Genesis again. Let's read the next few verses, uh, at least as introduction to what we'll be focusing on next week. And it came about before he had finished speaking. <laughs> Does that remind you of any verses? <laughs> that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. And the girl was very beautiful. 
Well, there's a big uh, plus, obviously, that wasn't part of the list, but uh, God brought that one in there. A virgin, and no man had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran over to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. And she said, Beat it, you jerk. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> that could have easily been what she said. <laughs> yeah, you have to study the Hebrew behind this. <laughs> And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw and drew for his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence. This guy was awestruck. I don't mean by her, but by what God was doing. So quickly and so dramatically to the point. You know, it's like, oh God, would you do this? And poof, you know, it happens. And you think, <laughs> you stand in absolute awe because you know it's God. Nothing you've done, nothing she's done, nothing anybody's done, what God alone has done in answer to a prayer of faith. And uh, there are a lot of really interesting details in this uh, particular section that we don't have time to delve into today, but uh, 